Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be with you again this evening. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing good, John. How are you? I'm doing good. So here we are, uh, continuing on with our series on the end times. This will be our third and concluding episode, but uh, we're definitely going to come back to this because um, it's so important to get a better understanding of the authors of the Bible and the historical setting around the writing of the New Testament. And also it's super important just looking at the geopolitical situation that we're in right now. So um, this is not something that we're going to end with uh, forever, but this episode will conclude um, our three-part series. Um, Getting a lot of response from our shows, which is great. And um, we've been kind of going back and forth and we keep running into... Um, a lot of Christians, mostly fundamentalist Christians, who um, like to accuse us of taking things out of context. Now, if you've actually listened to the show, what we find is most of the Christians that are saying this stuff haven't actually listened to the episodes. I think it's important um, if they are going to criticize what we're saying, they should listen to the show because we spend a lot of time talking about the context on the show. So it's definitely not something we ignore. But I think that many Christians um, kind of have the wrong idea of what context even is and what's the appropriate way to factor in the context when studying the Bible. Context is obviously important, but context doesn't mean what many Christians think. So here's what context does not mean. Context does not mean assuming the stories are all true and without error before we even begin. Oftentimes, we can gain insight into a passage by understanding what the author's underlying message is, usually by analyzing the surrounded verses and entire book. But what many fundamentalist Christians do is only look at that sort of context and ignore the source criticism. Here's a good example. When we talk about the New Testament, we know that there was a redaction and editing process. So we know that there are what scholars refer to as interpolations, or verses that were inserted after the original author wrote, usually during the copying process. So looking at the narrative context around an interpolation may not be helpful to understand its meaning. In fact, sometimes the fact that a verse seems to stand out apart from the narrative context is a clue that the verse may be an interpolation. So basically, many Christians assume that the Bible is the perfect inerrant word of God, and from that comes an assumption that the only important context is the narrative context. 
They will look at the surrounding verses and even look at completely different books of the Bible because, again, their assumption is that the Bible is free from error. Therefore, every author and book of the Bible must agree with each other. Here's a good example of how they often do this. We've been talking about the end times and how Jesus, in the gospel accounts, predicts his return to earth along with all sorts of supernatural fanfare. And he predicts this will happen during the lifetime of some of his followers. But Jesus did not return, and the apocalypse didn't show up. Many Christians will point to verses from other books to get out of the problem. They may quote Second Peter, where the author says, Well, yeah, Jesus didn't return during the lifetime of his disciples, but to God one day is like a thousand years. So many Christians would say, yeah, using scripture to interpret scripture, that's context. But Bible scholars and historians don't agree with that. You can't just assume that the author of Second Peter agrees with the gospel writers. You can't even assume that the gospel writers agree with each other. In many cases, they don't. What we try to do on this show is get a better understanding by taking into account the narrative context plus historical context, source context, and literary context. So when Second Peter seems to be saying something very different than the gospel writers, maybe he is. In fact, in this case, he seems to be addressing a community of people who are concerned that Jesus' prediction hasn't come true. So he gives Jesus more time. But he is saying something very different than the gospel writers. So by using historical context, when was Second Peter written? Oh, much later. And source context, who wrote Second Peter? Oh, someone a century later pretending to be Peter. We can have a much fuller explanation of the passage in question, and that is context. I completely agree. I think that um, a lot of times, ironically, sometimes taking a, a passage out of the context can allow you to get an understanding that can um, sharpen your historical context as well. So there's an assumption made that, let's just use Mark's gospel, um, because it's probably the most historical. Let's use Mark's gospel, it's the earliest, as an example. So if you make the assumption that Mark is giving you a historical account, then you would say, well, the context that Mark is giving you, the chronology that Mark is giving you, fits some sort of historical account. And therefore... Um, the sayings will be in the order that Jesus said them, or the sermons or different uh, times that Jesus speaks are a conducive, coherent whole. But that's not actually the reality of the situation. These were oral traditions that were passed along. So even with Mark as an author, who's not going to necessarily disagree with himself, Mark may have sources that disagree with themselves. So Mark may be pulling from this source, that's saying something slightly different from another source. Mark is arranging sayings of Jesus that he has in a document um, in order to fit his narrative purpose. So it shouldn't be that we assume that Jesus lumps these sayings together or that these sayings necessarily even trace back to Jesus. But if we ignore the context in Mark or make Mark say what Matthew is saying and therefore ignore the context— then we don't even let Mark speak as an author. So there's like a couple levels of detachment. There's one trying to connect with, are the, do these statements go back to something historical that Jesus said? And the context in the narrative is not necessarily helpful to do that because the context in the narrative is constructed by the narrator, who is Mark in this case. 
And then there's the second question of the context in Mark. What is Mark trying to teach by how he constructs his narrative? And in that case, you may want to look at the context in Mark. But but if you do that, it's extremely unhelpful to look at Matthew for a clue to what Mark is saying, except to compare and contrast, to say, well, here Matthew changed something that Mark said. So Matthew is doing his own redaction process, and Matthew is formulating his own narrative, and Matthew is changing Jesus' sayings or the narrative context that Jesus is saying them. So all of this stuff needs to go into context too. And then I think like what John was saying is really important too. Part of what the historical context in the text will tell you is when the text was written. Well, you know, if the text is talking about um, church officials um, and church uh, positions that didn't exist in the early church, then we know that it's a later text. And that's how we gauge that First Timothy and Second Timothy were probably not written by Paul. Almost unanimously, people agree they weren't written by Paul because they're addressing much later concerns in the church. Um, but if you just make the text agree, and they have theology that differs from Paul too, but if you just make those texts agree because tradition tells you that they were both written by Paul, and there may even be changes in Paul's theology as time goes on that you don't recognize if you just force every text to agree with everything else. Um, and there are parts in Paul's letters that are pulled from other sources as well. Um, and there's a redaction process that's happened over time where scribes and others have inserted their own editorial comments that have ended up becoming part of the text too. So all of that's to say is just looking at the context, you know, I'm sorry for this long sermon, but just looking at the context that's immediately there in the text doesn't give you the full picture. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that, um, and, and when we talk about these interpolations that, you know, verses that were not written by the author of the book, but were later inserted, this is not just some kind of conspiracy theory on the part of uh, scholars. They have found ancient documents where verses have been inserted, because when they find older documents, what do you know, some of those verses aren't there anymore. And um, so the job of a good um textual critic is to try to get our best representation of what the original authors wrote. And it's very difficult to do that because we don't even have the earliest, we don't have very much at all from the first, you know, two to three centuries of the church. And what we do have are just postage size stamp fragments. So what a lot of scholars are trying to do is actually take the words that we do have and then look for clues in the text to, de to decipher what might be an interpolation, what might not be original. And it works both ways because you were talking about Mark then. I mean, most scholars put a very early date on the Gospel of Mark. They think it's the first gospel written, probably written um, around 70 AD um, or, or soon after. And one of the reasons that they put an early date on it is precisely these verses that I'm talking about, where Jesus talks about returning during the lifetime of his followers. Um, it's very hard to believe that someone would have written that after all of the dis original followers of Jesus were already gone. So this was written in a time, and then there's other clues also about the destruction of the temple, and um, there's other reasons to, to date the Gospel of Mark. But I'm saying that, uh, you know, many skeptics out there that haven't studied the Bible might say something like, oh, these books were written centuries after Jesus lived. Well, that's not true. Most of these Gospels do come from a very early date. 
Um, so, and we can get into the dating and talk about each book. And then, and then, like I was saying, once you get to Second Peter, this is obviously a much later book, um, which is now not dealing with oh, the, Jesus is coming back during the lifetime of his of his disciples, but trying to almost make an apology for the fact that Jesus didn't return, and then totally reinterpreting um, what Jesus said in those passages. Yeah, and it's not to like fetishize the earlier text necessarily. Um, except to say, if your process is to try to get to what Jesus actually taught, then I think that there should be a a question of what's the earliest tradition, because that's probably the most historical. Um, I think the texts ultimately really reveal what moment in Christianity's early history they're being written in, and what concerns. And yeah, like you said, um, it's totally central to Mark that Jesus is returning um, eminently. And I think all of the early texts in, um, that we have in the New Testament, the genuine letters of Paul, and at least Mark and Matthew, um, are very consumed with this idea of Jesus returning um, within the generation that's still alive, within the lifetime of some of his disciples, within the lifetime of some of the witnesses that have... Uh, seen his ministry. And and then, you know, we, we keep going back to the Gospel of John um, because it was sort of the first redaction of that, or one of the first redactions. I guess Paul is also addressing some of the concerns of believers dying off. But John is, like, directly saying, like, I'm sorry the beloved disciple died. A lot of you misunderstood these ideas that, like, Jesus would return and these disciples weren't going to die. He just said that if I willed that, that that would happen. And so they're already starting to run damage control on this unfulfilled um, promise of a return within the lifetime of uh, witnesses who were there, witnesses to Jesus's ministry. Um, I mean, we're going to talk about a passage in Mark during uh, Jesus's trial with the high priest. Yeah, it's very central um, to these authentic texts. Like, again, I'm not trying to give the impression that that's the true message of Christianity, but that is the the overwhelming fascination and obsession with the earliest documents we have of the early church. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that um, verse in John where it talks about um, the beloved disciple not dying, and that's not, and then clarifying that that's not really what Jesus meant. To me, I lump that right in with the First Peter passage. It's, it's first of all, it's a way to date the the gospel because now it's clear that like Jesus didn't return during that time period that um, they expected him to, and that was written about in the Synoptic Gospels. And it's a little bit of an apology also, saying like, no, you just didn't understand it right. That's not what Jesus actually said. Um, not to mention it's a contradiction. Maybe we could do it on. Bible versus Bible sometime. But all this to say that um, the reason we're spending three episodes on this is because understanding what the earliest Christians believed about the second coming, I think is it's one of the most important things you can do to get into the minds of early Christians and even the writers of uh, the Bible, especially the Apostle Paul. It permeates everything that Paul talks about, which is the makes up the majority of the New Testament. And um, it's so crucial to understand this. And most modern Christians do not even agree that that's that Paul was even um, having that perspective of an eminent return of Christ. And if so, if they're kind of ignoring like the fundamental 
understanding that the Apostle Paul had, well, they're the ones that are not looking at the context, not us. So, all this to say, the way that a lot of Christians use the word context is not at all the way that anybody should use context. You shouldn't just assume the Bible is perfect. You shouldn't be able to look at any other book of the New Testament to back up what you're what you're trying to say because you're assuming that both of them agree with each other. We've had people on Reddit talking about um, some problems in the Gospels, and they'll just quote something from Third John, which is so separate from anything in the Gospels. It really has no bearing on it. But again, under under that assumption of inerrancy, well, it's all God talking and it's all perfect. Of course, uh, this can prove that. The other problem that they have is when you use scripture to interpret scripture, uh, well, which scripture do you use? Usually they'll use the one to support what they want to believe. A good example of this is when we were talking about Jesus says, hate your family, not to come back to this, uh, this uh, hot topic again. In the gospel of Mark, Jesus says, you must hate your family. And and then Matthew and Luke have the corresponding verses. And what do you know? Luke has, you must hate your family, but Matthew changes it. Matthew changes it to, you must love them less. So Christians will say, oh, well, I'm going to use that as context to say that now we can reinterpret Luke um, and we can reinterpret Mark to say, Jesus doesn't mean actually hate your family. He just means you can't love them more than you love Jesus. But again, that's that's an incorrect way to study the Bible, and that's not using context correctly, because you can't get into the mind of Luke um, or the mind of Mark, which is more important because he's the original, by reading how Matthew later changed it. Um, But I did want to jump back into the actual discussion at hand, because I know we have some other, um, what I think are like really important verses that we hadn't really touched on before in our previous two episodes about the end times. So this is in Mark 14, 61 and 62, and this is when um, Jesus is before the high priest. So this is right before his crucifixion. And again, the high priest asked him, and remember, the crucifixion uh, narrative in Mark, Jesus is basically silent the whole time. So this is one of the very few things that he says when he's uh, faced with the accusations in front of the high priest in the alleged sham trial. And it says, again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So, not only did he promise his uh, disciples and followers that they would not uh, taste death and that that generation wouldn't pass away, he also gave a specific promise, according to Mark, to the high priest at his crucifixion that he would see the Son of Man uh, returning in power. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's just um, as if we needed more, because I think the evidence was already overwhelming, but I think it just adds to everything we've been saying this whole time, that these people, that uh, this community of people that were reading these Gospels, or that these Gospels were written to, were Christians who were probably... Um, basically exiled Jews. Uh, Their families had left them in many cases. Um, The Romans had taken over Jerusalem and they were, the diaspora was in full effect and they were being scattered around. They were feeling all kinds of trauma uh, from, from these events, these like political events that had happened. And they, these were kind of a scorned people. 
And it makes total sense that what they were the most interested in was Jesus coming back with power to make everything right, to right all of the wrongs, to bring justice to them, and to vindicate them, really, ultimately, that um, this whole time they had been right and they had stayed faithful. And I think that um, all of these verses that we've been talking about just go on clarifying that point that they expected Jesus any day. And in the same way, when we see uh, teachers now that will claim that um, the end is coming and the, and Jesus will return, they will go out at night and sit on top of their roof or sit outside looking up at the skies waiting for this to happen. Well, I think this is what was going on uh, in the days of um, the first followers of Jesus. And it was just such a, again, traumatic event to lose their leader, to lose their Messiah. And... Um, the greatest hope was that he would be returning any day. And I just think that um, there's really no other way to interpret these verses. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I, not only is there no other way to interpret them, I think that they're really, I mean, we just keep harping on this over and over, but they're really like the key to understanding these texts. So in the past, we talked about the attitude in Scripture towards worldly possessions and money. And um, and how it doesn't place value on worldly possessions or money. And we talked about the anti-family message in the Bible. And these things are literally tied to this end times theology. And there was a reason that the early texts that Paul wrote, the letters, are not dealing with family issues. Because Paul was literally telling his, his people, don't have kids. If your husband dies, don't get remarried. If you, uh, if your daughter's not going to get married, don't have her get married. If you're single, it's better to remain single. Because his focus was on Jesus coming back soon. It, the worldly things were not the focus. Jesus wasn't someone that had a house. Jesus wasn't someone that was living a traditional life. Jesus could tell people to hate their family, because that didn't matter. He was coming soon in power. Um, within that generation, they were all going to be gone anyway. So there's no reason to lay out a political plan for how just government should be or how church authority should be set up. Some of the blind spots that are in the Bible are because of this end times theology. They weren't focused on that stuff. And now 2,000 years later, we have very, very different concerns. And I think the texts that do deal with it, like First uh, Peter, aren't addressing the concerns that we have today. <laughs> like, I think that their their damage control has outlived its use. But yeah, I don't think it's a it's an unavoidable conclusion that these texts are saying um, what they're clearly saying. Yeah, I think that um, it's it's also interesting to me how different modern Christianity looks than ancient Christianity did, and I think this is the very reason. Um, because it, the original Christians, like we said, they were living in in an era where they expected Jesus to come back any day. Like you said, they were um, supposed to share all the belongings amongst each other. It looked more like a commune than um, anything we see in Christianity today. And and like you said, the New Testament largely does not address how cr cr the Christian church should function out into the future going forward. It makes sense that the Catholic Church, um, this is part of the reason why they don't follow sola scriptura the way the um, Protestants do. Sola scriptura meaning we only look at the Bible, not church tradition. Well, the Catholic Church says, no, um, 
I'm, I'm obviously putting uh, my own spin on this, but they basically say, listen, the New Testament isn't enough. The Bible isn't enough. We need some direct um, intercession from God ongoing, and, and therefore we have the Pope, and um, the Pope, like spe- God speaks through the Pope. And, um, and that way there can be um, new direction given to the church going forward because God is directly engaging with the church, whereas the, the Protestant or, and evangelical churches, they strictly go by what the Bible said and move on from there. And obviously this is much more complicated if you want to hear more about that. If you go back and listen to our series, uh, Bible Blunders, we did like a six-part series on... Uh, on, on the different denominations and how they deal with these issues. But yeah, ultimately speaking, I think that this is one of the most fundamental ways to understand Christianity and the Bible. Yeah, and I think that it's such a, it's a subtle line that you can trace from the earliest, highest expectations to the Gospels. Um, so it's like the highest expectation in the in First Thessalonians— and then um, a slow sort of like dragging out uh, for Paul and struggling with like his hopes being frustrated to the point in Romans where he's like really holding on to hope. And then you have the Gospels and Mark is the most Pauline as far as its expectation of this event happening. And so it's interesting because Matthew and Luke are the two that... um, take Q and take Mark and sort of do their own editorial process on uh, the materials. And oftentimes the way that we know that is because of the different ways that they redact um, or change uh, uh, Q and Mark, which they both had. Um, And what I think is interesting is Luke seems to have held on to the really radical um, anti-family and anti-riches stuff, but has had started to minimize the Christ is returning. So even though those two doctrines are sort of linked, I think, in the early uh, theology of Paul, by Luke, I think they had sort of been separated, because Luke starts to redact some of the, you know, it will happen in this generation, um, some of you here will see it, to, like, he leaves the rest of the passage in, but takes out some of those really, like, specific um, it's going to happen in our in our lifetime, whereas Matthew redacts some of the anti-family stuff, like we talked about before, but is totally on board with the crisis returning soon. Um, so there's a whole theory that Luke is a little bit later, which I think this sort of uh, it's like a little bit of evidence for that theory, which you know it may or may not be true. There's nothing really in biblical scholarship that you can get everyone to agree on. And, uh, you know, theories usually take 150 years before they're all uh, <laughs> flushed out and people can sort of, like, agree on some consensus. It, it's just interesting how the redaction process works. And again, and then you trace it even further to John. I, I'm trying to find the passage in John, but I think there's even, like, a passage where Jesus says, like, you know, when people tell you I'm coming soon, like, don't believe them. They're false teachers. But I would have to find the reference. I can't find it off the top of my head. Um, but John is obviously starting to 
just completely ignore that this is going to happen immediately and everything is sort of uh, stretched into eternity. And then you get into like the later sort of pseudo uh, pseudo Pauline stuff and the pseudo Peter letters. And, and those are just completely like reformulating this whole idea into a stretched out, frustrated, broken promise. Yeah, I think um, it's super important to um, look closely at what you just said because um, the way that scholars date these Gospels, I mean, many Christian fundamentalists will say, no, John was written by a follower of Jesus, the beloved disciple named John. And we know that the name John didn't even appear on the Gospel for several hundred years. Uh, It was anonymous. And the same as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the, the claim that each gospel is an independent account from an actual follower of Jesus. And um, that's a claim that's made, but there's no evidence at all to support it. And in fact, the scholarly opinion, like the academic opinion, um, like Ben just said, it's totally backed up. Like, okay, the, the dating of the gospels. Well, they date John as being the latest gospel. And you know what? Yeah, John no longer has, wants anything to do with this idea that Jesus will be returning during the lifetime of his disciples because the disciples were dead. In fact, the gospel of John goes out of the way to say, no, Jesus did not say that. Um, so again, that's a clue to the dating of the gospel and it makes total sense. But I try to like take into account the arguments made by believers. And I thought the best argument, this is, this was the best argument that I heard, um, trying to defend the more conservative view. They said, okay, this, this verse about, um, Jesus returning during the lifetime of his disciples, these verses that say this, if that's what Jesus was actually saying, if that's what was actually in the original text, and it's and it's what it really means, why wouldn't later redactors and editors take it out? Because it obviously seems really problematic, and it is really problematic. So, you know, why wouldn't they just remove it so that we, we no longer have that? And I actually think that's a good point, because you do find redactors and editors um, trying to change difficult things. We've given you a few examples of this, uh, but there's a lot more, and maybe we'll do a whole episode on that. But here's my answer to it. I think, I think the answer to it is what we've already said, that this idea was such a fundamental belief of the early Christians. And it was in not just the Gospels that we have now, it was probably in lots of other um, proto-Gospels and early sayings of Jesus. It's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, and it's all over the letters of Paul. I don't think it would have been possible to remove it. If you had removed it at that point, this was such a beloved teaching. It was like the very expectation, the very hope that these people were waiting for. Um, the They had been copied and copied and spread all over the Christian world. Um, it, w- it wasn't like there was some editor that could just come in and hit the delete button and get rid of it. So I think that's why it remains in the tradition, because it genuinely um, stems from the from the earliest Christians. And, I mean, the reality is there's a lot of things that they would have removed from the tradition if they were just taking out anything that was a problem. There's a lot of problems that are left there. So um, I don't think that that's really... I mean, they did correct some issues, and we know that because we can examine texts over time and we can um, do our own investigative work and compare different copies that were made from different schools in different eras or... We find a copy where something is in a different place, or we do, uh, when we talk about the story of Joseph later, we'll talk about one of the other ways that you can um, 
sort of see the differences that are in text. Obviously, they could have corrected it, and they did correct some things. So by the time Scripture was put together officially, uh, 300 years or so after Jesus's uh, birth and or Jesus's lifetime, they had Second Peter. They had these later texts to reinterpret Scripture. I mean, um, a lot of people, when we were talking about this on Reddit, were quoting like the early fathers, and the early fathers were saying, "Well, like certainly he doesn't mean generation, and certainly he doesn't mean." this, or he doesn't mean, like, literally that his disciples will still be alive. And it's like, well, you're faced with two options. Either, yes, you reinterpret the text, which is what every group that's ever had apocalyptic expectations does when their apocalyptic expectations fail. Like, literally every group in history does this. Um... And you can read about the Millerites that became the Seventh-day Adventists. And you can read about uh, the different calculations that have gone on through history uh, where people have tried to figure out when the uh, the end times was, were going to happen. Um, and you know what? They were all wrong. And most of the time, they just reformulated the equation or reinterpreted their beliefs. The prophecy remains true even if the calculation is incorrect. The prophecy can never really be wrong. So... You know, they had two choices. They could say this is incorrect, or they could say we just interpreted it incorrectly. Or there's a bunch of different ways that this could be read. Jesus wasn't really talking literally. But if you want to be a good scholar of what the text is saying, and if you do what we've said that you can do and examine how this idea has progressed, then you see that it is what the text is saying. And whether it goes back to Jesus or not, certainly his early followers thought that it went back to him enough that even though it may have been controversial, even though the hopes may have been getting frustrated, they still continued to copy it into the um, the text that they were copying. They still continued to have these stories circulated. They still continued to um, emphasize these sayings. So the more controversial a saying is and, and persists, the more likely it is that it's genuine. Um, my opinion about why they didn't change it is that it was um, too widespread all over, like the Christian church. People had been memorizing these texts, and um, the fact that we have it in so many places, I think it would have been impossible to remove it from the historical record at that point anyway. Um, another example comes to mind where they, there was an attempt to do this, where at the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit's voice says out loud so everyone can hear, this is my beloved Son, today, today I have begotten you. And some that's how some variants read it, and then some variants read it, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, today I have begotten you, many scholars think actually was the original, because it it puts forth an adoptionalist point of view that Jesus wasn't God. He became God at his baptism. And um, then redactors and editors later had to change that because the theology had evolved to a much higher theology where Jesus was universal and eternal and preexisted um, his earthly form. So um, that's an example that many scholars have used to show how, yeah, the major pieces of doctrine um, have been adjusted over time. But again, even in that case, it's a good example. It, it doesn't always work because we have a textual tradition where we have lots of variants that we can look at and try to determine what's the most likely was the original. Yeah, I mean, it's an, uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but I, was, uh, I got into a Twitter thing with someone today 
So it was a Catholic person, and they uh, posted from Luke 1, 28, uh, you know, Mary, you're blessed are you above all women, and uh, blessed is the seed of your womb, or whatever. And I'm like just looking at it. So I tried to look up the text because I, I was like, I bet you that that's an interpolation. Because I know the two portions of the narrative in Luke where uh, Martha and Mary have their uh, announcements of their birth are like uh, definite later interp interpolations. They've just been added. Like if you take them out, the narrative flows more uh, smoothly. They're like uh, largely taken from the Greek Septuagint. Um, not really that crucial. Um, so I looked it up and it was like, you know, the second part of the Catholic creed around Mary is a later interpolation. It's in the Latin Vulgate, um, but it doesn't exist in the earlier Greek copies. So, and maybe that's not a problem for Catholics because of their like progressive uh, revelation through uh, church doctrine and through the authority like held in the Pope. But if you care about what the early text says and what the writer was actually writing, it is a problem. Like, that's not the doctrine of Mary that the writer of Luke was trying to portray. And even without that interpolation that's not in our Bibles, because I couldn't even find it, I had to, uh, like, look at a footnote in Raymond Brown, um, you know, we have those other sections that are later interpolations that are in our, our Bible in Luke. So, yeah, you get a bunch of stuff that's added that we've been able to locate that was either constructed on top of doctrines or to soften doctrines or were lad added later on. And Sorry for the side. You would think that somebody that was a Christian and eager to get to what these original authors said would really embrace this process that we're talking about because it gets you much closer to um, what the original text was. And instead, often what you find is not trying to get to what the original text said, trying to get to what they want the original text to have said. And, um, and I just think fundamentally that's the incorrect way to do it. It's, it's a giant exercise in confirmation bias where you um, try to make the Bible say what you want it to say. And if you believe that there's an all-powerful God behind all this stuff, it would seem to me like a pretty scary proposition to fundamentally change the words of God and the words of Jesus just to suit your what you want. But it, but I, it honestly seems like that's what these people are doing because some of it seems so ridiculous. Some of the um, ways they tie themselves into knots um, to get out of these problems just seems kind of absurd. It gets frustrating. And um, I think there's like a theological you know, there's theological blinders. The theological way to interpret the text is really not helpful if you want to actually know what the text is saying. Because, um, you know, it does. It just, like, homogenizes every um, author's perspective. And um, it doesn't allow the text to speak for itself. Like, you, you know, I even... Again, a slight aside, but during the conversations we had with people online around the... Um, Luke 14, 26 passage, the you must hate your mother and father, like people are getting so angry <laughs> about that passage. And I didn't make that passage up from thin air. Like that's in the Bible. Like you don't have to get angry at me about it. Um, you know, I was watching a scholar interview today and he said like, you know, the, the application or interpretation even of the passage is probably Matthew's interpretation 
that really you're supposed to love. But I think also the reality was that Luke was trying to make a point about you having to give up your family. Like there was a reason that Luke stuck with that phrasing. Um, and the scholar was also talking about the Greek uh, just being totally clear in meaning hate, like as if there was no other word for uh, love less that they could have used. Like, the, you know, they use clearly the word for hate. You have to be able to let the text speak for themselves. To like swing back to the discussion of the, um, the eminent return, it's like a, a hinge on a door that allows you to see the beginning, like, and then the door turns, and then there's the second part. So um, the beginning is like the promises of Jesus's return. And that's like the whole first half of the New Testament. And then the door starts to swing and you get the pseudo Pauline letters and uh, the Gospel of John. And then when the door fully swings, then you're getting into like Peter and everything has been already reinterpreted. And then by the time, you know, the church fathers are writing, like the first kind of layer of church theology, they've already reinterpreted all these texts to mean something completely different than what was before the door swung. You know, Paul's theology, it hinges, like everything Paul taught hinges on the idea that he's living in this sort of time uh, that exists outside of time. So, you know, Christ's death and Christ's, resur or Christ's resurrection, and now they're just in a pause while they're waiting for Christ's return. And so that pause is like sort of outside of time for Paul. So his idea wasn't that that was going to be a long thousands and thousands of year period. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. And I think that a lot of the theology that people have attributed to Paul is a misunderstanding because they're not looking at it on that small timeline. Yeah, I think we're um, we're going back and forth between um, making our main point and uh, also addressing what a lot of um, believers have come at us with and criticized us for. So we're we're going back and forth. But I I did want to talk about another um, verse that I think really kind of like puts the icing on the cake for our position here as if we need it anymore because I think it's already overwhelmingly true from everything we've seen from the Gospels and in the letters of Paul. But Ben, why don't you talk a little bit about this other passage where it talks about how the disciples wouldn't even be able to travel through all the lands of Israel before all of these things uh, in the apocalypse take place. Yeah, I think that this, this verse is actually the most damning of all um, because... I mean, if you look at all these passages as setting sort of a timeline, um, I mean, this one is extremely problematic. Uh, so in Matthew 10, 23, Jesus is telling his disciples, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Yeah, I mean, uh, talk about clear. I mean, he's saying like, not only is this going to happen soon, but he's giving you almost an indication of how soon it will be. Like, you you won't even be able to get through all these towns and cities, um, and I will have returned. Yeah, and I mean, I can already anticipate the um, response. Well, what's the context? Or, you know, someone said, well, he's talking about that specific journey. He's talking about when they go out then, they're not even going to make it till he meets up with them again. Okay, I mean, that's a ridiculous interpretation. Um, but let's just take a look at the uh, context for a second. 
Jesus is calling his uh, 12 and he's about to send them out. He tells them not to take gold or silver or bags or extra shirts or sandals. Um, and, you know, he gives them uh, the warning about if towns don't accept you, then to shake the dust off your feet. And he says, truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Hmm, already starting to talk about like that final uh, language of final judgment. So I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Wait, flogged in the synagogues and handed over to local councils? I don't remember that happening in, in, uh, in Matthew's gospel. It must have happened on this trip, though, if what people are saying is true. I mean, they won't even make it through the cities of Israel before they're flogged and uh, handed over to the local councils. Because this is happening before Jesus says the Son of Man's coming. Right. Um, He says they'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Well, when does the mission to the Gentiles start? Historically, that doesn't start till after Jesus' death. Hmm, interesting. Um, But when they arrest you, I don't remember the disciples getting arrested in the gospel, do not worry about what you say or how you say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking to you. Wait, when, hold on, when does the Holy Spirit come to the disciples? Uh, It happens in Matthew's gospel, right? uh, I'm thinking of Pentecost and Acts. Yeah, so it doesn't make sense if this is all happening before they make it through Jerusalem, and Jesus is just talking about meeting up with them again, how would they have the Holy Spirit already? Well, maybe it'll make more sense if we look at the context. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Doesn't sound like anything that happens uh, before Jesus meets up with his disciples on this trip. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end... I guess he's talking about to the end of the trip will be saved. And when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Well, I don't know, John. Am I manipulating the context here? No, I don't think so. It's extremely frustrating. Like, it's so clear. If, like, if you make that argument, you just like, have not read the passage. Like, you haven't looked at the context. And, you know, I'm sorry for the sort of frustration as I read it, but it's clear. Like, I'm not making this stuff up. This is not me and John's interpretation of what the Bible is saying. This is what scholars who look at this stuff says. And even evangelical scholars who look at this recognize this is a big problem. This is what the texts are saying. Yeah, and I want to just recap for a second, Ben, because again, you're t- you keep talking about context. Like, so we have in the Gospels Jesus saying that, talking about a um, supernatural apocalypse and his second coming, coming on the clouds, etc. And he get as far as the timeline of when it will happen, he says, no one knows, um, not even the Son. Like Jesus himself doesn't know, but he knows the window. He knows like. Uh, you know, in general, like, um, that it's not going to be a long time. He says, this generation will not pass away. This generation, um, 
is obviously talking about those that are around when he is alive. And then to even make it more clear, in Mark he says, some of you standing here will not taste death until all these things take place. And then Ben just talked about a passage where um, Jesus in front of the high priest, and he says, you will see this. He's talking to the high priest and says, you will see the Son of Man coming with power. Um, Yet another proof of this. And then we have this other section where Jesus says, you won't even be able to get through all the uh, cities and towns of Israel before this takes place. So again, even using like the evangelical line of using scripture to interpret scripture and put, making sure everything's in its narrative context, um, the, the picture is very clear. This was a failed prediction. And any attempt to, um, historically, any attempt to get out of this problem has failed. Um, we've talked about a few different ones, including preterism. Um, it still fails because the language is so simple. Now, I wanted to say one other thing here about the language being simple. If you do get out of this problem, if you do find a way to reinterpret it or look at Second Peter and use that as your guide to say, well, a day is as a thousand years and what does the Bible actually mean? If you can take just the simplest, clearest teachings from the Bible and then just say they mean the exact opposite of that, when it says Jesus will be coming soon and, in, and that means over 2,000 years from now, or, you know, or when it says you must hate your family, but it, no, but it doesn't actually mean that, you can just make the Bible say anything you want. Any verse you don't like, you can get out of, you can reinterpret it. And this is, by the way, exactly what Christians do. And I think kind of the point of this show is to expose that, um, that way of thinking. It, I would have a lot more respect for fundamentalists if they would at least um, not try to deceive everybody by lying about what the Bible is actually saying. At least agree, yes, it's saying that and then deal with it. And I think the way you deal with that is you have a more progressive church that um, takes into account errors, and you understand inerrancy can't possibly be a doctrine that we teach. Um, but no one's obviously going to listen to me, but I just think that um, you really are just bastardizing the words of the Bible when you decide, I don't like what this says, or this, this means Jesus' prediction is wrong, so it can't possibly mean that. I just think it's a fundamentally flawed way of reading the Bible. Well, it's extremely ironic that in order to defend the literal interpretation of the Bible, they'll stretch the literal interpretation so far. So the literal words don't mean the literal words anymore in order to preserve what they think is the literal meaning of the text. So, like, inerrancy is a problem because there are clear errors. Literal interpretation is a problem because what it literally says creates problems. (laughs) But what I don't think is appropriate is to accuse someone who is trying to understand what the text is literally saying of being a liberal or trying to read something they want to read into it, because that's actually what the fundamentalists are doing. Like, they are reading their doctrine into the text and not letting the text speak for itself. And I think the other interesting point is, um, as far as strategies to deal with this problem, the first uh, person that we see... Uh, deal with the problem, and the first strategy was uh, the writer of Luke's gospel, Luke Act, uh, the writer of Luke and Acts. And again, 
he just ignores the stuff that he doesn't like about the uh, imminent coming of Christ. So he leaves the passages, but takes out the stuff that uh, is too time-specific for him. And I feel like that's what the evangelical church does all the time. It's you hear, like, coming like a thief in the night, or nobody knows the day or hour. But you don't hear, like, this generation will not pass from the earth before this happens, or some of you here will see the Son of Man returning in power. Because they just, like, it's they're the same passages, I mean, you can hardly separate those two things when you're reading the whole passages, but somehow selectively these things get drawn out and the other things that are inconvenient get ignored. And I think that there just has to be some intellectual honesty to let the text speak for itself, one, and also just not uh, dishonestly use the text for whatever means you want. Or you can even have an honest, uh, an honest assessment where you say, you know, Luke's theology is that is not that Christ is returning, um, which is different than what Mark and Matthew and Paul are saying. Um, in our time, we realize that Luke's theology is probably right. Um, that would be at least letting the authors speak for themselves, um, as opposed to saying, well, like, no, Matthew and Mark couldn't be wrong, so they're saying the same thing as Luke and John. Yeah, Ben, I couldn't agree with you more. And this isn't something that the fundamentalist teachers at uh, seminaries don't know about. They do know about these things. But you know what? They just don't teach it to the parishioners sitting in the pews. So, like you said, they focus on certain aspects of the passages. Like you said, a day is like a thousand years or coming like a thief in the night. But they conveniently leave out some of these much more difficult verses that clearly say, and by the way, this will all happen while some of you, meaning the disciples, are still alive. And that's the, one of the issues I have with um, the whole endeavor of pastors and preachers, because the preacher can get up there and say these things. They can't be questioned. Um, nobody can raise their hand and ask a question or even confront them on something that they're leaving out or getting wrong or misinterpreting. In a church service, it's not academia, and they're not open to new ideas or different ideas. They're there to tell you something and to tell it to you in the way they want you to hear it and to leave out what they want to leave out. But um, we have so much more we could talk about with this. We've gone on for a long time. Um, why don't we get into false witness? This is False Witness, the segment where we take a look at three Bible verses, two of which are real and one is fake, planted by our cunning producer, Diana. Um, it's our job to analyze the verses and decide which verses are real and which one is the false witness. Take it away, Ben. Okay, verse number one. Your eyes shall behold strange women and your heart shall utter perverse things. Verse number two. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And verse number three. And the Lord said unto Moses, They have disobeyed my commands, so I have hardened their hearts. Hmm. Hmm. The one that seems the most unusual to me is number one. The other two just seem um, very biblical. But yeah, 
that was my impression at first too. I mean, it's like none of them seems that strange that they couldn't be biblical. Right. Um, I just don't know the context of one. Um, two sounds like Proverbsy or Psalmsy, either written by obviously David or Solomon. Insert laughter. Um, <laughs> and uh, number three seems so. Number three seems real to me. Now maybe I'm misremembering the passage, but that sounds genuine in my book. Um, but I also tend to agree with you that uh, number one sounds the strangest. Number two, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those. They're so straightforward. They're all like so... Yeah. I would love to say that, uh, I'm like, wait a second, Like the Lord doesn't have eyes or ears or a face, but, you know, he does a lot of times in the Old Testament. Or the Hebrew Bible, I should say. Well, what other text would um, the Lord be talking to Moses in? I mean, it's uh, it, it would have to be some apocryphal... Um, yeah, it could be like Quranic, maybe. I don't know if they how many of the biblical narratives they retell, if Moses is one of them. Um, but it seems pretty straightforward. Um, that, like, I mean, and I know, like, they talk about... And I'm going to say, disobeyed my commands, so I've hardened your heart. Well, we know that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. But, um, but, but I don't think it I, talks about how like Pharaoh disobeyed his commands. So I'm wondering no, if this I is think like, it's talking about the Israelites, like the golden calf incident, or yeah, it's what it seems like one of the times of disobedience. Um, I mean, I t- I'm, I, it would take a lot for me to say number three. I would really have to think that Diana, our producer, is being really tricky. I know, that's what I'm worried about. Your eyes shall behold strange women, and your heart shall utter perverse things. Huh. Oh, it's interesting. All right, I'm going to go number one is the false witness, just because, like I said, it's the only one that's a little bit weird. Um, but I don't have, like, a much of a reason to think this. Yeah, me too. I think it's interesting. So two of them... Um, they're all like dealing with uh, anatomy. So, you know, the eyes and the heart in the first passage. Um, I don't know whose eyes or heart because we don't know who it's addressed to. Uh, the eyes of the Lord, the ears of the Lord, That's the face true. of the Lord. And then the third one is uh, the hardening of the whoever's hearts uh, when they disobeyed Moses. So, you know, creative theme. Um, I think I'm going to say that number one is the false witness, too. Um, I do like to choose uh, a different answer than you, but I don't want to be wrong. And <laughs> I no. think that that one's the false witness. All right. I will open the wax-sealed envelope. Which one should I start with, then? You tell me. Uh, let, maybe go in descending order. Okay. So do three, two, one. And the Lord said unto Moses, They have disobeyed my commands, so I have hardened their hearts. That is from a AI generator. Oh, Jesus. See, I, I knew like I was... Generators. <laughs> These generators are horrible. Yeah, because that is like... <laughs> I mean, there's probably a verse that's almost 
like line for line, exactly that. I'm sure it just combined the <laughs> two passages but, that we were but, talking but about. But I, like, okay, I'm not going to give myself any credit here. But I was kind of questioning. Well, wait a second. Like that. Like he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Fa- Pharaoh's yeah. heart. Um, yeah. And I and like I don't remember him hardening the Israelites' heart. So I was like, maybe it's from the golden calf incident. But apparently yeah. not. So anyway, we're and I said that I don't remember the passage specifically. So right. But I also like said I would. It would take overwhelming evidence for me to believe that it wasn't part of the Bible. All right. So let's just round it out. So me and Ben both, our uh, crafty producer Diana got us uh, using an AI generator. <laughs> uh, but number so we're going descending order. Number two for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are. Open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Comes from First Peter, First Peter three twelve, and then uh, number one, thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Comes from Proverbs twenty three thirty three. Well, no, we didn't do very good on that one today. No, I got to tell you, um, I'm really strongly against this AI generator, <laughs> uh, like being involved in this. <laughs> process i feel like it's pitting technology against man and uh ever since i saw terminator i know that that's not a good it's not a fair fight yeah never in the movies it never seems to work out well for anybody no the man triumphs but not at uh, usually at great cost okay so we'll end the show with a quote blind belief in authority is the greatest enemy of truth albert einstein night, Ben. Have a good night. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skeptics Bible project and follow us on all social media platforms at skeptics project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com.